Where's that bellows cramp? He probably owes you money, huh? Well, I'll ask him. His daddy can't talk. Look who knows so much, huh? Well, it just so happens that your friend here is only mostly dead. There's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Please open his mouth. Now, mostly dead, he's slightly alive. Now, all dead, well, with all dead, there's usually only one thing that you can do. What's that? Go through his clothes and look for loose change. Good morning. I'm here to tell you this morning, you are all dead. You are not mostly dead, you are all dead. This is one of the five great movies of all time. If you've never seen The Princess Bride, you must rent it and watch it ten times before the summer is over. That's three times a week. It's a perfect movie, great for kids, great for grandma and grandpa. You will love it. This is one of my favorite scenes from the movie where Mad Max makes a miracle drug and he gives it to the knight and he, and, he, and he brings him back, sort of, okay? But you are all dead. Did you know that? Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified in Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. God has already written your obituary. He says in Galatians 2.20, that you died. He says who you died with. He says how you died. And all those things have been done by us for God in Christ. You know, when you come to faith in Christ, you begin a relationship with him. At the point of that relationship, uh, that lasts forever. My wife and I will be married 40, wow, 42 years next month. Woo! She's a very patient and kind woman. We were married in a little church on Cleveland Heights. That uh, After we got married, they tore the church down. But that had nothing to do with it. But, uh, you know, at that point, we went to the front of the sanctuary, and we said our I do's, and, and thanks to God's grace and my wife's love for me, we've been married that whole time. That husband-wife relationship was permanent. But what changes is our fellowship over time. And you husbands know the key... To fellowship with your wife is how obedient you are to her, right? And it's the same way with our Heavenly Father. When we come to know Jesus, we begin a relationship with God that's permanent, it's fixed, it's inviolable. But the hard part of the Christian life is not beginning the relationship, it's enjoying the fellowship with God. And in order to enjoy the fellowship with God, the first thing we need to understand is we are dead. We have an obituary. There's a cute story about an old woman that went to the newspaper. Her husband had recently died, and she wanted to make sure his obituary was handled properly. And so she sat down with the editor of the newspaper. Kids, newspapers, you don't know what they are, but they used to arrive at your home every morning in the dark. And an obituary is what they say after you're dead. That's usually nice things. And she went to the editor, and she, she laid out this three- or four-paragraph obituary, and the editor said, well, ma'am, that would be fine. Uh, but you need to understand there's a $2.50 charge per word in the obituary. Well, she shook her, she shook her head and she said, well, that, that will never do. Uh, how about we just say this, George Rogers died. He said, well, that won't work either, ma'am, because we have a seven-word minimum for every obituary. So she shook her head and she said, well, I got it. George Rogers died, 1993 pickup for sale. 
That was his obituary. Well, our obituary is in Galatians 2 and verse 20. If you'd stand with me, I'd like you to read this together. And we'll do it nice and slow. And I'm going to use this verse all morning. This is a great verse to conclude our Christmas in July series. Read it with me. I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Thank you so much. Have a seat, please. You know, if you had to choose one verse to describe how to have a relationship with God, you might pick something like John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believed in him would not perish but have eternal life. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, you have to begin a relationship with him by coming to understand these two parts of that verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son is a finished fact of life. Our job is that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. And the idea of biblical belief is to go all in with Christ, to say, I believe that what he did on the cross is enough to to purchase my forgiveness, to pay my debt to God, and that because Jesus has been raised on the third day, I have the right to expect that God will provide me, me with eternal life. But whosoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. But if you wanted to find one verse that summarized our fellowship with Christ, our walk with Christ, I would pick one of them to be Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. You see, when you study this verse, and I've spent the last couple of weeks Cranking through this verse. I love this verse. It's one of my favorite verses of the scripture. The first thing I want you to understand about this verse is it is a verse about life. You see, you are dead and I'm dead. You're not mostly dead. You're all dead. 2,000 years ago when Jesus died on the cross for you, God sees you in Christ as dead. See, we try to grind out the Christian life. Oh, what do you have to do to live the Christian life? I got to pray. Oh, I'm going to pray. I got to go to church. I'm going to church. I got to bless the food. I'm going to bless the food. I'm going to read my. All those things are good. But in and of itself, the first thing to understand the Christian life is death. I died with Christ. It says this I have been crucified with Christ. And five times the word life or live is in this verse. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. There's a great story about St. Augustine who, after he had come to Christ, having lived a life of debauchery and womanizing, came back to his original hometown. As he got off the ship, one of the former prostitutes with whom he would conduct business said, Augustine, it is you. And he said, no, it is not me, it is Christ. He understood that out of the death of Christ came life. He had a new life. And that life was associated also with Christ. It was a life about Christ. I was blessed to go to Dallas Theological Seminary back in the 70s. It's the one true seminary. If you're ever downtown, come by my office. I have an office above Mitchell's Coffee Shop, and if you'd like, you can come by my office, and 
we'll turn out the lights and close the door and watch the Shekinah glory glow from my diploma. The founder of Dallas Seminary was an old Presbyterian minister named Lewis Berry Chafer. Dr. Chafer was disappointed with the liberalism creeping into the mainline churches. And so he gathered a Baptist friend and an Episcopal friend, another Presbyterian friend and a Methodist, and together those five men started Dallas Seminary back in 19, I believe it was 27. And he taught a course until he died every year to the incoming freshmen at Dallas Theological Seminary on the Christian life. And I never got to meet Dr. Chafer. He had passed away before I got to school. But I'll never forget the imprint he made and the quote that was left behind when it came to the Christian life. And he would say, men, all I want to be is a suit of clothes that Christ is wearing. I'm an empty suit of clothes, and I want people to see Jesus in me. See, we make a big thing about being the hands and feet of Jesus here. That's why we try to feed the poor. That's why we try to provide for the teachers. And all that, again, is good. But I can't do that by myself. Christ has to do it in me. I can only be good for so long. Just ask Gwen. And pretty soon I run out of goodness. And so I need to first understand I'm dead and that Christ lives in me. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. When I come to faith in Jesus, I get the benefits of the crucifixion, but I also get the indwelling ministry of Christ. It's called the Holy Spirit. He comes to live inside me. Why? Because he loves me and he gave himself up for me. You know, Jesus is the only person who ever lived the Christian life. And if I'm trying to grind out goodness on my own, all those things are good, but if I'm trying to say, okay, God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray more, I'm going to read my Bible more, I'm going to say the blessing more, I'm not going to say cuss words, I'm going to stay out of pornography, I'm going to do whatever, and I try to do it on my own, I will fail. Because this is a verse about Christ. Christ lives in me. Paul mentions this over and again in the epistles. In Philippians, Paul writes this little epistle to the church of Philippi from a Roman prison. And he's writing to the Philippians, and he's kind of torn because he says, you know, Philippians, I'd really like to come see you when I get out of prison. On one hand, on the other hand, I'd rather die and go be with Jesus. And so he says, for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. He understood where he was in his relationship with God and he understood how to walk with Christ. He had a ministry from a Roman prison cell to the Roman soldiers who would be chained to him for six-hour shifts. They would come to Jesus and then he would send them off after they got transferred to the ends of the Roman Empire. So he loved being in prison with these guys. It's that book that says, I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. It doesn't have to do uh, with, with all things miraculous, although that's possible, but it has to do with, I can live whether I'm in jail or I can live whether I'm in the palace. The prison and the palace make no difference because to live is Christ and to die is, is gain. Second, he says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So I, I need to understand, I am dead. Every world system understands that God is separated from man. We're sinful creatures. And because we're sinful creatures, we're separated from God. And every other religious system says, you know what? You need to earn your way to God. But you can't. Because no matter how good you are, you're not perfect. And God is perfect. Now, I might, be per- I might be better than some people, you know. 
Compared to Brian Legg, I'm an angel. But, the, but compared to his wife, I'm not doing squat, Jack. You know, I'm just in trouble. But compared to God, none of us measures up. And God says, you know, the wages of sin is death. You deserve to die. And 2,000 years ago, Jesus came and he died for you and for me. I've been crucified with Christ. God says, Ed, you can't do it. So I'll just punish Jesus instead. That's what's great about the Christian life. It's not something I do for God. It's something that God does in me. It's a verse about life. It's a verse about Christ. And third, it's a verse about reckoning. Say reckoning. Look at the person you came with today and say, I reckon this sermon will be over soon. I'm hoping that to be the case. I love reckoning. It's an old King James word. Have you seen the movie Tombstone? In the movie, right after Wyatt Earp, goes blazing guns into glory, you know. Uh, <clears throat> Doc Holliday is talking to one of the guys who observed it, and he said, man, he said, Doc, I think Wyatt Earp was out for revenge. And Doc Holliday said, make no mistake, that wasn't about revenge. That was a reckoning. To reckon means to look at the books. It's a bookkeeper's term. It, it means to to take into account the balances and the, and the minuses and to add up all that is, that is in, in the equation and then make a decision. So when you say, I reckon, you've taken into account all the facts. In the Christian life, God, instead of giving us a list of 88 things to do, because we'll always try to find an 89, God says, understand, first of all, I want you to reckon who you are in Christ. Knowing this, Romans expands this doctrine. Knowing this, Paul says that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. See, if I'm dead, I can't sin. That's good to know. I, I really tried to adapt that this week to me. It's not about what I do. It's about who I am. I'm dead. And so, you know, when I'm tempted to do that, when I'm tempted to say that, when I'm tempted to be that, when I'm tempted to not love my wife or my kids or my grandchildren, I can say, okay, I can get through this. Not because of me, but because I'm dead and Christ lives in me. Jesus, you're going to have to do this through me. And that's what it means in Romans 6, 11. Even so, reckon is the King James Bible. Reckon, consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. Christ lives in me. The life which I now live in the flesh I live by faith. That's what walking by faith is about. It's not what I do for God. It's what the Holy Spirit of God does in me. Here's another way to understand it. Maybe you have a car, and you have a loan on the car. Don't raise your hand. I, you know I'm not in favor of that. In the name of Dave Ramsey, get rid of all your car debt. <clears throat> but let's suppose you had a car, and you owed money on the car. And let's suppose that today you decided, I'm not going to have that car anymore. I want a new car. And so tomorrow you go to the dealer, and you go to the dealer and you negotiate a price for a trade-in on your old car. But before the deal can be consummated, the old debt on the old car has to be paid. And then you can get a whole new loan on the new car. And so you drive off in the new car, and you know next week is the 1st of August already. How is, oh, 1st of August. 
August was when two-a-days started when I played football. August 18th, the, the hardest day of the year in my life. What happens on August 18th, Kara? Happy birthday, and you're going to be how old? 20. Way to go. Well, that was a miserable day in my life until today. Because on August 18th, I reckoned that I was dead meat for about three weeks of two-a-day football practices. But let's suppose that now you have the new car and you have a new loan, and when the 1st of August comes, or the 18th, do you write out a check for the old loan? No. Do you go back to the dealer and ask to drive the old car? No. And neither does God want us to go back to the old way of life. In fact, the great thing about God is not only do we get a new car, but he's paid off the loan on the new car. That's what salvation is about. It's free. And so I have from God this brand new car. How am I going to treat it? Am I going to drive it into the ground? Am I going to run it into a post? Am I going to abuse it and treat it like garbage? No, I'm going to love it. I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to be a good steward of it because it's the most incredible thing that God has ever done for me. I've been blessed in my life. The car I drive now was a gift to me. I'll drive that car forever. I never miss an oil change. I keep it clean. And it was because a, a bunch of guys looked at my old car and said, that's a disaster. We need you in a new car. So I take great care of that car, and that's what God has done for us. He's given us a new way to live. Reckon yourselves dead to sin. You don't need to pay on the old debt anymore. It's done away with. It's dead. But alive to God in Christ. This is a verse about life. This is a verse about Christ living his life in us. This is a verse about reckoning that the old way to live is gone and there's a new way to live here. And fourth, this is a verse about about living by faith. This is a verse about living by faith. Paul, again, expands these doctrines in the other epistles. Galatians is his first epistle. And over time, as the churches grow, he takes these rudimentary teachings and he expands them. 2 Corinthians 5 says, For we walk by what? Faith and not by sight. Colossians 2, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. We just got done our series in here in the book of Ephesians. You remember Ephesians 4 and 5 and 6? Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. I was reminded this week of how, how great a word that is. We walk by faith. I spent last week in North Carolina up in the mountains. My son called and said, Pop, we're going to the mountains of North Carolina. Would you and Mom like to come with us? And I said, Well, we would love to come, but Mom's got to be babysitting grandbabies in Texas but I'd still like to come. He said, Pop, you don't understand. It isn't you we want. <laughs> Imagine that. He said, we need Mom to come because I'm on crutches and we need babysitting help. My son that, that plays baseball has had knee surgery two months ago. He's had two months on crutches, and he's got four months of leg rehab before he's back to 100%. And taking three, I call his kids the wombats because they're just like him. You know what a wombat is? That's them. I have ten grandchildren, but those three are affectionately and forever known as the wombats. If you have wombats, God bless you. The great thing is there's justice because they're just like their daddy. And at the end of the day, they just collapse in place and are exhausted and go to sleep. They're all three this way. 
He's got a six-year-old, he's got a five-year-old daughter, and then he's got Jake the Tank, who's two. And Jake thinks he's 22. So we get to the mountains, and there's a cabin, and we're staying in this wonderful cabin, and there's a a long leather couch at the end of the hall. And my six-year-old grandson, Nathan, he runs down the hallway, and he hits the the, the, the chair of the arm of the chair of the couch and he does a flip in midair and rolls onto the couch. Pretty cool. His five-year-old sister, but a bump, but a bump, but a bump, and she hits the uh, the arm of the chair and she does a full all-out belly flop onto the leather couch. Jake, the idiot child, <laughs> he thinks he can run and jump, but he's two and he weighs a hundred pounds. <clears throat> I think he weighs. He weighs more than Zach's son, who's four. He just, he's like a watermelon on small legs. There's nothing graceful about the child. And so he decides, he's running down the hall, and he gets to the couch, and he jumps, and he goes, boom. And he looks at the couch, and he dusts himself off, and then he goes back the hall, up the hall, and he does it again to prove that he's the idiot child. He did it every day we were in the mountains last week. One of the days we took a hike, and we were in a great place in the mountains in Carolina, and there was a, there was a trail that led up about, oh, 20, 25 minutes. It was probably a little over a mile long, but it was steep, and it was jagged. And so Maddie went up as far as he could go with crutches, <clears throat> and the rest of us went to the top because there was an observation deck on the top of this cliff overlooking. You could see four states from there. It was a spectacular day. Great to be in the mountains, you know, 65 degrees instead of 128 degrees. It was wonderful. Getting up was not a big problem, even for Jake. I, I carried him the first bit, and then he wanted to get down, and he proved that he could get up the hill because when you're two and built this close to the ground, if you fall, you only fall six inches. Coming down was another story. We started down the gravelly, rocky path, and brother number one... I mean, he's got great body control. I think he'll be a rock climber. Child number two, she'll be a gymnast. She races downhill. Jake takes his first three or four steps, and then he realizes, he realizes, he's not a total idiot, but he realizes that a face plant is in his near future. And then he does a very wise thing. His favorite person in the whole world is my wife, Miss Gwen. They call her Mari. And he looks for Gwen, and he reaches up, and he grabs her hand. But more importantly, you know when you walk with a toddler, you don't let them grab your hand, you grab their hand. And down the hill they walked. See, he walked by faith, knowing that she would not let him fall. And that's what God has for us in Christ. It's not that we hold on to him, although we try but it's that God holds on to us completely and entirely. And just as we receive Christ by faith, we walk by faith, hanging on to him with him grabbing us, and he never lets us go. That's the Christian life. It's a walk. It's a, it's a simple faith statement of putting one foot in front of the other, in front of the other. We don't know where the journey ends. We just know that while we're on the journey, we're holding on to the one who loves us and gave himself up for us. It's a verse about life. It's a verse about Christ. It's a verse about reckoning. It's a verse about the cross. And this is lastly, a verse about uh, Christ. And lastly, it's a verse about the cross. My voice is starting to go, 
So I'll wrap this up and land the airplane. Yeah. It's a verse about the cross. This happens at the cross. 2,000 years ago, Paul says, I was crucified with Christ. The word crucified, you could substitute the word executed. When Jesus died on the cross for us, it was their means of capital punishment. This is called the doctrine of co-crucifixion. I have been executed, co-crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me in the life which I now live in the flesh. I live in the fa- by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Christ went to the cross to pay the punishment that I owe to God, and he was executed in my place. Christ never gave himself as a suicide mission. The key to the cross is not what Jesus did under the law at Mount Sinai, but it's what he did because he loved us at Mount Calvary. Jesus gave himself and he loves us. It's the God so loved the world word in the first part of that verse. And he gave himself up for me is the word that Pontius Pilate used when he gave Jesus up to the soldiers. But Jesus went on his own accord. They couldn't have dragged him there. You remember the story in the Garden of Gethsemane when the soldiers came to arrest Jesus? There may have been five to six hundred in a cohort. And they walked up at night carrying torches and Judas had planted the kiss on the cheek of Jesus and Jesus stopped them in their tracks and said, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am he. And the word I am is that great passage we sang in our first song, which... Brian led us in. The great I am is the Hebrew word for I am God. And with that, the scripture says they were pinned to the ground by their neck. It's a wrestling term. In the Olympics, you would pin your wrestling opponent to the ground. If Jesus could supernaturally do that and call a legion of angels, he went to the cross not because he was dragged there, not out of suicidal thoughts, but he went as a sacrifice for you and for me. See, the biggest problem with the Christian life is me. I get in the way. I need to get out of the way and be that empty suit of clothes that Jesus lives inside of. It's not what I do for God. It's what God does in me through the power of Christ because I've been crucified with Christ. Back in the days of the Civil War, there's a true story about a man named George Wyatt. George Wyatt had six children, and he received a draft notice from the Army of the Confederacy. And his family anguished over how they were going to provide for themselves since he was far and away the only breadwinner. George Wyatt had a good friend named Richard Rogers. And as the story goes, Richard Rogers consulted with his good friend George Wyatt and said, You know, I will go in your place. I will take all of your identification. I will pretend that I'm yours that I'm you and I will fight in the army of the Confederacy. I want to fight for the cause of the South. And so Richard did that. He took the identification and he fought with distinguished honor until the Battle of Vicksburg where he was killed. He was buried at Vicksburg and a few months went by and George Wyatt got another draft notice in the mail said, uh, you know, we know you're alive. We know you're just fine, and now you have to serve in the Army of the South. Wyatt took the draft notice down to the draft board and said, ah, no. My buddy, Richard Pratt, 
died in my place. But he died as me. I'm dead. I was killed in the Battle of Vicksburg, and I was buried at the cemetery in Vicksburg, and that death applies to me, and even though I'm fine, you can't draft me. And they agreed. You see, that's how God sees us. He sees Christ's death in us as the perfect substitution. And not only does he see Christ's death in us, but he sees Christ's life in us. When I try, I fail. When I trust Christ, he succeeds. How are we going to apply all this? Let me give you two things I'd like you to do. Pray about these. These are not mandatory. I did not get these on tablets of stone. Again, one of the funny things about this verse is it doesn't give you a list of things to do. It gives you something to reckon. But here's something that's been very helpful for me, and I'll share it, and if you'd like to do it, I think as a church family, you'd be blessed. The first is, I'd like you to memorize Galatians 2.20. You know, we've already read it once today. You've heard it from me a half a dozen times. Let's say it again, shall we? I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Now here's how I memorize a verse. You may have a better way. But when I memorize a verse, I will read it three times from Scripture. I'll take this verse. You've already read it twice, but if you wanted to read it around the table at lunchtime today, that would not be a bad idea. Sometime today, read the verse three times. Then you have to get out your pencil or pen and write it down three times. It's a long verse. It'll take you a little while, but by writing it down, there's a, there's a connection between what I write down and what sticks in my head. Now, I know the kids type, and I don't know how that works because I don't type well, but I find writing it down makes a big difference to me. And then I say it to myself or say it to my spouse or someone in my family uh, three times. And by the time I've read it three times, written it three times, and say it three times, it starts to stick. That's action step number one. Action step number two, up here in the front of the stage, in amidst all the grocery bags, we've got <clears throat> hundreds of little spikes. And these are the spikes that will remind you of what Christ did on the cross for you 2,000 years ago. And while we sing our last couple of songs together, if you are so led, come on up here and grab one of these nails. And what I want you to do is keep it in your pocket. I'm going to keep mine in my pocket all week, and every time I dig in there, I'm going to say Galatians 2.20, just to remind me. I need to be reminded all day long. Or maybe you want to tape it onto your refrigerator or put it on the dash of your car, maybe with a 3x5 that you've written the card on. And see if just getting that into your brain will help your walk with Christ this week. Would you pray with me? Father, we are thankful that we have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer we who live, but Christ lives in us. And Father, we so desire that the life which we now live in the flesh, that we would live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself up for us. Thank you for Jesus and his incredible love. And we pray in his name. Amen and amen.